Welcome to Asians in the Spotlight. We are a podcast branching off of Asian Advocates, a youth-led organization that is dedicated to amplifying Asian voices. Asians in the Spotlight is created using Anchor, a free platform with tools that allow users to record and edit audio clips to create their own podcast. Anchor will also distribute your podcast across platforms for others to listen to. This is our third episode of our first podcast series, Asians in the Political Field. In this episode, you will listen in as our hosts Lisa and Caitlin interview Sam Park, a representative in the Georgia State Legislature. and welcome back to another episode of Asians in the Spotlight. I'm Caitlin, one of your co-hosts today. And I'm Lisa, your other co-host today. In today's episode, we meet with an American politician and lawyer who serves as the Georgia State Representative for House District 101, Mr. Sam Park. We look forward to hearing about your experiences today. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, so Caitlin, Lisa, thank you for, for reaching out and inviting me to be on your podcast. Uh, my name is Sam Park. I am the Georgia State Representative for House District 101. That includes the cities of Lawrenceville and Sewanee and Gwinnett County, the most diverse county in the southeastern United States. I also have the privilege of being the first Asian American Democrat and the first openly gay man ever elected to the Georgia General Assembly. That is really impressive. and. We're just going to start off with some questions about your early school days and education. So what do you remember most starkly from your schooling days? And did your identity as an AAPI ever affect your experiences through school? Yeah, so I remember uh, particularly in elementary school uh, being the only Asian American uh, in my in my class. Um, it was definitely an interesting experience, but I think one that became incredibly valuable as I ended up becoming, you know, one of uh, only a handful of Asian Americans currently serving in the Georgia General Assembly. Uh, but that feeling of not necessarily belonging, the feeling of looking different from others, um, you know, definitely um, struck me uh, as, you know, being part of that otherness. Um, I think in part that made me more intentional uh, with trying to find common ground uh, with, with my classmates um, and, and you know, wanting to make sure that I could connect uh, with, with folks, uh, maybe not necessarily uh, based on my ethnicity or my race, but on the many other things that we had in common, whether it was what, you know, the things that we liked um, or the things that we cared about. Um, and again, I think those, those uh, instances in which I was able to find common ground or practice finding common ground became incredibly helpful, um, you know, in my political career and as an attorney. What were your ambitions for your future when you were growing up? And were you always interested in politics? And if not, what triggered your interest in it? So I never grew up wanting to be a politician. Um, you know, when I was in college, my primary focus was, you know, what profession could I enter into that would provide me the kind of financial stability that I wanted, um, such that I could take care of my family and my loved ones. I think as, as you know, the son of immigrants, that's always one of the most um, elusive goals, um, that, that financial stability. And so for those reasons, I ended up going to law school. Um, 
That said, when I went to law school, I took a, a course in health legislation and advocacy that for the first time exposed me to the legislative arena and public policy. And I fell in love with, with the complexity and the, dy uh, the, the dynamic nature of the legislative process. And that really began my start into public service. Um, I ultimately ran for office um, one, because I was interested in public policy and the legislative process, but also for personal reasons. Uh, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer um, back in 2014, and her battle ultimately inspired me uh, to stand and fight so that every Georgian has access to health care in the state of Georgia. That's so inspirational. <laughs> um, so this class you were talking about that inspired you to go into politics was it taken at georgia university yeah so it was a a um during my second year of law school at uh, georgia state university uh, it was called i believe health legislation and advocacy um so it was a a two semester course the first semester which we spent time actually drafting a piece of legislation the first bill that i ever worked on um would have expanded uh, preventative health services for all kids in the state of Georgia, specifically the uh, early periodic screening, diagnostic and treatment services, the acronym is BSDT, um, and, and then to provide skilled nursing services for medically fragile children. <clears throat> that entire experience really taught me the amount how much good you could accomplish through the legislative process. Um, and again, it was, uh, you know, really that, that step toward, uh, that, that first step down the path of public service in which I understood for the, for the very first time really, um, how much good that you could do through the law um, in terms of helping people in need. Mm -hmm. So kind of building off of that question, could you tell us a bit more about like your experience studying at Georgia University? I, we heard that you went there through the HOPE scholarship, so could you also build off of that? And whether there were any significant events that happened during university that impacted your identity? So, so yeah, I, I think it's important to note um, that, you know, I was able to go and, and get both a bachelor's and uh, a BA in public science and BS and economics um, at, at GSU without going into debt because of the HOPE scholarship, which covered all of my undergraduate um, tuition costs. And, and coming from a low-income background, that was critically important um, and, and really gave me an opportunity um, to, to not only seek a higher education, but to have an opportunity to knock on the doors um, that you could then uh, have access to following your undergrad, right? And, and of course, that would be for law school. Um, and of course, it was through law school that I had an opportunity to serve in the, in, in the legislative process. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say my college experience was different from you know, any others. Um, I, I think definitely a learning experience in which I was able to come into more of my own um, and, and to find my own community, including both within the Asian American and the LGBTQ communities. Yeah, actually, um, kind of like what you said, I just have a question about like your identity as, you know, a Korean American and a gay man. Like, I mean, I'm from New York City. And so hearing that you're from Georgia, like I, I have like these I don't know, stereotypes that I often hear, like from social media and stuff like that. Um, you know, and 
I, I hope like I don't find you from from this, but like, uh, yeah, just like from what I hear about Georgia is like, it's very conservative state. How did you wrestle with that? Yeah, so I mean, without a, without a doubt, um, you know, growing up um, at the intersection of, of my Asian American and my LGBTQ identity mm-hmm. was challenging to say the least. Um, you know, especially growing up in the Deep South. Um, I, I let folks know, like I, I had three layers of, of uh, culture that really kind of suppressed, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, being who I am, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I grew up in a Korean uh, household, which was socially conservative. I grew up a Southern Baptist and still heard a lot of the fire and brimstone. And then of course, grew up in the Deep South, which is also been very, a socially conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think those three layers um, really, you know, made it challenging to say the least. Um, but, you know, f- and, and I think for those reasons, I was always very scared of being outed, mm-hmm. um, you know, fear of not being, not only being rejected from my community, whether it was a Korean community or the church, um, but also, uh, you know, fearful of um, you know, physical attacks upon upon myself. Um, you know, I, I think it. I think and I hope it's different for you know the next generation. But you know, I, I remember distinctly growing up. Um, you know, when I was 13 years old, of Matt Shepard being tortured and murdered uh, for being gay. Mm-hmm. I had friends, 13, 14, 15 years old, um, who had been kicked out of their households. Their parents turned their backs you know, on their own kids after they came out to them. And so, you know, it was, you know, a, a present and constant fear uh, that, that always lingered uh, in the background in my mind. Um, but of course, you know, when I turned 18 years old, you know, I, you know, I, I essentially came to a crossroads where I could either decide, uh, you know, to live a lie and, and to try and, you know, fit whatever cultural box folks were trying to put me into, or I could simply, uh, you know, learn to love myself and to be the best version of myself that I could be. Um, of course, that was without, uh, that, that was not without its own challenges. Um, you know, in, in the Deep South, while there's a very vibrant LGBTQ community, um, particularly in Atlanta, which I think is often served as a safe haven for members of the LGBT community around the South, um, I was surprised to find myself confronted with discrimination yet again, uh, but not because I was gay, but because I was Asian. Mm. Um, and so, you know, facing these multiple layers of, of discrimination and oppression and, and different instances of my life, I think, ultimately allowed me to um, focus on uh, the things that necessarily made me different. Um, but on the things that I felt were more important for myself as a human being. And of course, I think in the midst of, of all the challenge of trying to navigate, you know, all these challenges of, of life in and of itself, um, it developed in me, I think, a lot of perseverance right. um, and, and, you know, being able to stand my ground and, and not necessarily, uh, you know, being, being uh, scared of being myself um, and, and, you know, I think just, you know, you, you learn how to become comfortable with yourself and to love yourself uh, no matter what. Um, and, and I think for, for that, mm-hmm. I, I am appreciative of, of mm-hmm. perhaps some of the more challenging experiences I experienced in my early life.
I think it's really interesting, you know, how you, you, like you said, you struggled with being parts of multiple communities that, and based on your, you know, where you grew up in the church and in the deep South, like you said, it's really difficult. And yeah, I think it's really commendable that you still see those experiences as valuable. Um, I think that's really, really cool. And just like a little bit also about identity as well. As a Korean American, um, how have you like struggled with, I guess, like finding balance between that um, Korean identity and being, you know, raised in America? Because I, I don't know, for me, as a first gen Asian American, I struggle with, you know, like, oh, am I, am I Chinese? Am I American? Like, how can I be both? So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I think every single son or daughter of immigrants faces that conflict, that inherent mm -hmm. conflict of the culture from your homeland, your motherland, and the culture in which we are born into. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't think that there's necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach um, to navigating that, that complexity, because ultimately I think it's, it's, it, it falls on your shoulders as to what kind of life that you want to live. I think for me, because I had found myself on the outskirts um, and, and feeling as if I didn't necessarily belong wholly with one group or the other, my approach was one of simply trying to find the best of both worlds and, and incorporating those strengths um, into myself um, and not necessarily uh, ignoring or, or denying, um, you know, one culture versus the other. I don't think it necessarily needs to be uh, everything or nothing. I think it can, you know, be an al amalgamation um, of the best of both worlds to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on, on those, uh, some specific examples, I think would be, you know, when it comes to individualism, right, um, and, and the pursuit of who you are as an American, I think without a doubt that's made it uh, much easier for myself to accept my sexual orientation and to be more independent-minded, where you know, I, I will go and seek those uh, who will love me and accept me for who I am. Yet at the same time, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of my Korean heritage um, and my Asian American uh, roots and that there's such a deep, rich history there in and of itself. Um, you know, my family, my, my, um, my, my, my sisters, my, my baby nephew, uh, my uncles and aunties, like, you know, those are all folks who I prioritize and care deeply about. Um, and, and always will. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, and, and of course, a lot of the things that I've done in my life as well, whether it's in the pursuit of financial stability, um, has been to ensure that I have the capacity to take care of family as well. Um, so, so again, you know, I think for anybody who may be struggling with, with those dynamics, um, first and foremost, like, know yourself, right? Center yourself, um, because I think you owe it to yourself, especially given that we have one life to live, for you to, to know yourself and allow yourself the capacity and the grace uh, to grow. Um, and, then, and then two, you know, again, understand both cultures and, and where you come from and, and to the best of your ability, uh, try to incorporate and find the best of both worlds and, and make it your own, pioneer your own path and be fearless in doing so. Yeah, definitely. And I think like all of that um, is really relevant to like the youth today because in the Asian, you know, in the AAPI community, like the topic of like mental health or like, you know, just talking about, yeah, just talking about mental health and 
how we are like dealing with identity. I don't think it's a conversation that is often talked about. So yeah, starting like these conversations, like you talking about finding that kind of balance and, you know, finding the best between both worlds is really important. So yeah, thank you for that. And just like, if I could say real quickly on yeah. that note, um, mm-hmm. I, I would encourage y'all to, to watch that um, the social dilemma documentary on Netflix because I think it 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 illuminated a lot of challenging issues that especially younger generations are facing, particularly with social mm-hmm. media and constantly being uh, compared with with yeah. you know the image of other folks. And of course, that's incredibly difficult. Um, as members of a minority community and that you aren't going to see yourself represented mm-hmm. in, in media and entertainment um, and oftentimes, you know, even in politics itself, mm-hmm. um, you know, to all of that, you know, I, I would encourage, you, you know, everyone to first and foremost unplug, you know, more often than not, quite frankly, um, and understand that, you know, each and every one of us possess unique talents and abilities, and each and every one of us are deserving of love. There, there's a beauty and, and something special in our lives, right? And that there is, there is no same one person um, in the world, right? And yet we constantly try to look like others or, come, or appear like others. And I think that that can be incredibly uh, dangerous and concerning, right? And and sometimes taking a break from social media, I think, would help in preventing that sort of comparison trap. Um, but again, going back to you know your Asian American roots and identity, um, I think that also helps in understanding your identity um, as an Asian American, um, you know, first generation, second generation American, um, because this is our home as well, and. To a certain degree, even if we don't necessarily see ourselves represented in media or in politics or in the or, or in the you know boardrooms of Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, um, it is upon our shoulders, um, you know, to to again pioneer our own paths um, at, so that we can end up in those spaces uh, as well. Because there's nothing, nothing whatsoever that prevents us from doing just that, other than. Um, our own self-doubts. I think that can sometimes get in the way more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually like really, uh, really cool that you mentioned that documentary because I was just talking about that same documentary with the teacher in my class today. Yeah, um, yeah so I'll definitely like be looking into that because I think it's really, yes, yeah, definitely social media, especially like this time in quarantine, it's definitely taking a toll on like the youth and social, I mean, mental health and stuff like that. So yes, yeah. And uh, just going back on like your career and education, what kind of internships or like entry level jobs have you have you taken on that has helped you um, with you know your experiences and to get to where you are today? So I've done a little bit of everything. Um, I was a waiter at um, a cafe. I was a terrible waiter. Um, just FYI, I lasted about maybe like six to seven weeks at most, and just. There's something about like, I, I mean, I commend waiters just because mm-hmm. it's a job that I know I cannot do. Um, I was, I worked at Bank of America as a bank teller for a few months. Um, I helped my family business. Um, I, I helped manage my family's business, which was a, a check cashing store. Uh, you know, managed that for, for nearly 10 years. Um, and then of course, a, a bunch of, you know, diff- differing and various uh, you know, political internships and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 
I think out of each and every one of those experiences, um, some of the most important lessons I learned in life were just the human to human connections, right? Um, and, and I think it's that much more challenging in, in this COVID-induced environment in which everything is via social media and the lens of that, which I think exacerbates a lot of the mental health challenges that you had referenced. Mm -hmm. um, but being able to connect uh, to another human being, I think is so important. Um, you know, whether it's, it's in service to them, um, which oftentimes was the role that I was in, which was incredibly helpful um, and, and the current position that I'm in now, it's all about public service. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's having, it's developing and, and honing that capacity, uh, I, I think, to talk to anybody and everyone, um, whether they are white, black, Latinx, Asian, old, young, Republican or, Republican or Democrat, quite frankly, liberal or conservative. Mm -hmm. um, but to understand that each and every human being that you talk to has human dignity. Um, has human worth that should be respected and and to then treat that individual um, as you would want to be treated right with kindness with with respect and and I think of course you know in, in the roles that I that I was in in service right how may, how, how can I help you right I think all of those experiences uh, without a doubt again were incredibly beneficial um, especially thinking through my first uh, political campaign in 2016, where, you know, I was, the way in which I was successful, the way in which I unseated a three-term Republican incumbent was knocking on tens of thousands of doors, uh, talking to a wide variety of individuals and building a coalition, um, sharing my story as to why I was running for office, which was um, you know, fighting for access to healthcare, um, and then connecting with them on what they cared about, um, and, and demonstrating that I was there to serve them more than anything. Um, and so, you know, I don't think it was necessarily one key internship or another that necessarily set myself apart. Mm -hmm. I think it was a culmination of all these uh, uh, human interactions and experiences that prepared me to be successful in, in the current political arena that I'm in today. Mm. Yeah, that's actually, that's, yeah, I really love um, that answer, like, about human connection, because I think especially now, like, seeing how divided people can be, you know, whether it's political opinions or, like, um, political parties, it's really important to have, like, that kind of EQ, you know, being able to connect with people on an emotional level, like, although our opinions might be different, you know, we're still humans at the end of the day, and we still care about different issues, whether it's healthcare or, you know, something else. So, yeah, that's really commendable that, you know, you, you see that and you value that. Also, another question about, like, your job experiences. So what was it like when you first started at the Georgia State Assembly? It was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was very, you know, it was a very intimidating environment to walk into mm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, at the time, I was the only Asian American. I was the only openly gay man. Um, and I was one of the youngest legislators. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was walking into an environment that I knew was, you know, dominated by Republican legislators and very conservative. And I had this, you know, these blaring national headlines of, you know, first openly gay man, uh, you know, is elected to the Georgia General Assembly. So mm -hmm. I, I had legitimate concerns as to how I would be received. Right. Um, I was pleasantly surprised, um, you know, to, by the reception uh, that, that I ultimately had, which was very welcoming. 
uh, and very respectful and generous. Mm. Um, and and I think the tone was was set by our Republican speaker, um, uh, David Ralston, who welcomed each and every member, regardless of whether they were black, white, gay, or straight, which I think is the first time he'd ever said that. Mm. Um, and ultimately, it was grounded in the under understanding that each and every one of us were there, not because of our own uh, willpower or volition, but because the people of Georgia had trusted us with the opportunity to be their voice in the legislature. And so each and every one of us was due and, and given respect because it was the will of the people that, that allowed us to be uh, where we were. And so with that opportunity, um, you know, I, I was very intentional and deliberate, uh, again, trying to do everything I could to find common ground uh, with, with legislators of both parties, black, white, old, young, Republican or Democrat. Um, and I did that oftentimes by, you know, allowing my actions to speak for myself, right, which was work hard, come to the committee hearings, prepared, ask tough questions, um, uh, keep my head down and, and to do the work to demonstrate that I care just as, just, just as much about the welfare um, and the well-being of my constituents in the state of Georgia as many of these other legislators. Well, just as Lisa has said earlier, I find it so commendable and inspirational that even though you belong to one party, you're like willingly opening up to and reaching out to and caring about like people of all different types, regardless of whether they shared different opinions than you or didn't. I mean, shared different opinions or you or whether they shared similar opinions. Because I feel like personally, a lot of these days, like politicians on the screen, a lot of them just only see the other party as sort of almost an enemy, just like the people that like their competition and they don't really try to willingly open up and try to listen to what the other people have to say. So yeah, I find that really inspirational. Yeah, and, and I think it, it's even more intentional for um, for our generation and the next generation to be mindful of that, um, because I think you know one we are in an un, an incredible we're in a hyper partisan political age, um, and part of the reason in which we're in this and there are many, including money and politics, uh, gerrymandering, um, you know, twenty four seven social you know cable news. Uh, the social media bubbles that, that each and every one of us are in. Um, but again, I think it's so important for us again to, to recognize and to establish that human dignity, yeah. regardless of whether we are of a different party. And, and I think the only way in which we can come back um, is if we start trying to be more intentional with finding common ground. Now, certainly over the next you know, 40 days or so, um, that's going to be difficult because we're in the midst of, you know, one of the most lessons of our lifetime. And I, I know through all my social media platforms, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, uh, you know, for folks to elect Biden and Democrats up and down the ticket to save us, to save our democracy, which I quite frankly feel is at risk because uh, I don't think Trump necessarily represents conservative values or even a political power, a political party in a traditional sense. I think he is you know, quite frankly, much more of an authoritarian figure that, that puts our democratic process at risk. Um, that said, you know, 
I think as Mayor Pete had, had once said, um, you know, what is our vision for the post-Trump era? Um, one thing that I am certain of is that the challenges that we face as a nation um, are unprecedented and, and incredibly difficult. Um, in which the only way I feel that we'll be able to overcome these challenges is if we're able to stand united as one nation, as, as one people, um, united uh, by the values that we we uphold and 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 uh, you know you know our American values that make me who we are as Americans. Um, that that where there is room to celebrate our diversity of who we are. Um, but, you know, let's look at the pandemic. Let's look at the economic crises. Let's look at uh, the social unrest, climate change that poses an existential threat. All of those crises uh, will require uh, 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 structural change and transformative changes um, and will only, in my opinion, be, be overcome if we work together. Um, you know, one of the things that I've said down here in Georgia is I don't care necessarily whether a idea comes from the left or the right or the center even. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea as long as it will help address the problem that we are trying to, to, to fix. And ultimately, that's what the legislative process is all about. It's to try and solve the collective challenges that as, as individuals in a community, uh, we have to work together to try and overcome it. And of course, the legislative process in and of itself was designed explicitly to force men and women to compromise with one another, to find common um, so that we move forward with solving the more complex challenge and problems um, that, that, you know, again, if we aren't able to solve, uh, becomes, a, a, has a deleterious effect against each and every one of us, regardless of political affiliation. Mm -hmm. That was so well said. And just going back to your careers, could you tell us a bit more about the 2020 Democratic National Convention that you were chosen to be a speaker for? And how was your experience being the first Korean American included in a national party keynote address? So um, when they first gave me a call a few weeks uh, before the convention, I thought it was a prank call. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was a friend pulling my leg. I was like, who is this? What do you want? Um, but, you know, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the work that I've been doing in Georgia has been focused on uh, trying to encourage people and inspire people uh, to, to, you know, get involved to lean into the democratic process, which is a, which requires participation if it's going to work. It's not about one race. It's not about one candidate or one politician. It's about all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when, I, when they invited me to be a keynote, it was an incredible honor. Um, and I was just, you know, very humbled and, and grateful, uh, you know, to be recognized. Um, you know, for the work that I had done and, and of, of the potential that they see in me as well. Um, you know, when it comes to being one of the first Korean Americans, and I, I don't know if I'm the first ever or, or, or if there was someone before me, but I think it's always important that if you are someone who breaks a barrier or has an opportunity to be the first, mm -hmm. that what's far more important uh, than having that, that extra few words next to your name is that you pave the way for others, right? Such that you aren't the last, whether it's, you know, 
so, so for example, one of the things I'm most proud of um, in, in my time in the Georgia State Legislature is having seen another openly gay man get elected to the Georgia State Legislature, to see more openly LGBTQ candidates run for office, um, more Asian Americans. Um, so after I was elected, the very next year, we elected the first Vietnamese uh, progressive Democratic woman to the Georgia General Assembly. Uh, this year, we have an opportunity to elect first Filipino Chinese American to the Georgia General Assembly by running as Democrats. And so, you know, that has so much more of a transformative impact uh, for the long run, for, for the benefit of all of us. Um, that I think it's, it's important, again, uh, to be grateful for those opportunities to break a barrier, but I would encourage anybody to be far more intentional uh, with, with ensuring that that door is left open behind you and that the next generation can come behind you and continue to do that work. I love that analogy you used about the open door. That's just, I don't know, it just fit what you're, the message you were trying to say so well. And what kind of tasks do you take on daily as the representative for the 101st district? And what do you think is like your most important part of a typical day or like a task in the assembly? So Georgia has a part-time legislature, uh, meaning we're in session for about three months of the year and the rest of the time we are, you know, working our private job. Um, for me, you know, in my private capacity, I'm uh, the general counsel of uh, Positive Impact Health Centers, one of the largest HIV-AIDS uh, nonprofit health centers uh, in the state of Georgia working to end the HIV epidemic. And so I'm very grateful for, for the work I do there. Um, as a legislator, you know, uh, part, of, part of our job is, is actually writing the law. Um, you know, it's doing an enormous amount of research uh, seeing what other states have uh, successfully implemented and then trying to uh, uh, adopt that language, incorporate it into Georgia statute, and then to find community partners um, and, and others who would be uh, impacted by the proposed change uh, to move it forward. So that legislative um, uh, lawmaking process is still something that I find quite fascinating um, and, and I love that component of it. Um, that said, I think, um, especially now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the most important work that I would say I'm doing right now is talking with constituents, especially those who have been unemployed and help them receive benefits. Um, you know, I've, it's, it's always a few emails, a few constituents reaching out every single day asking for assistance, uh, whether it's for unemployment, whether it's for, well, thank, before the eviction moratorium went into effect, you know, what am I gonna do if, if I get kicked out? Um, and then of course, trying to help um, also um, help people find assistance for food and, and things of that nature. Um, and it's a constant reminder that, you know, these are incredibly challenging times for a lot of working class families. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of my time these days is, is spent doing the best I can to ensure that, you know, the lifeline. Mm -hmm. That all is so interesting to hear because personally, I myself am looking to possibly pursue a career in the political field in the future. So on that note, what kind of advice do you have for young people like me going in, looking to go into your field? I think first and foremost, and I think this goes back to a bit of the earlier uh, conversation, you have to know yourself. 
Um, you have to know yourself through and through. Running for office, I think, is one of the most self-reflective exercises that you could ever do, especially if you want to do a good job um, and, and you know, serving your community and being a leader in your community. Because being in the public spotlight requires you to constantly um, analyze and, and understand yourself and, and the reasons why you're doing the things that you're doing. Um, otherwise, if you enter into the political arena, it becomes very, very easy to lose a sense of, of uh, yourself if you don't have a strong moral compass um, within you, uh, guiding you uh, to do the things um, and to ensuring that you can stand your ground when the times get difficult, when there are multiple um, you know, entities and, and um, you know, folks pulling you one way versus the other, uh, competing interests, so to speak. And so in, in that capacity, and in, in knowing yourself and in knowing why you want to run for office, the best piece of advice that I can give, which helped me figure out um, and to hone my focus was to answer the question, what breaks your heart, right? What issue or what group of people breaks your heart? And, and what can you do to help, right? If you can figure out the answers to those two questions, um, I think that that provides an enormous amount of guidance um, in terms of what, what office you should run for, and, the, and most importantly, why. Why you're running that position in particular. Um, and I think if it's grounded in the people and what you want to do for people, not yourself, um, not, not you know, because I want a title, um, not for money, certainly. There are many other ways to, to make a lot of money that's not through politics. Um, but if we want to have and if we want to see the kinds of leaders um, that are focused on service um, and, and are focused on trying to, you know, you know, for us to live up to our, our, our principles, our founding principles of ensuring liberty and justice uh, for every single person who calls this country home, um, you have to live those values yourself, right? Um, and you have to ultimately, again, know uh, who you want to fight for and, and why. I really enjoyed that. It was very meaningful. Yeah, definitely yeah. Like knowing your passion. I think, like, especially in the political fields, you know, like you said, you have people from both sides, you know, pulling you in one direction, one in the other. So it's, like, really hard to, I guess, stand your ground. And even, yeah, just, like, seeing our government officials now and it's, yeah, it's really important to just, yeah, like you said, you know, know where your morals are, what, what your morals are, who you're fighting for, and why you're doing it. And those are definitely, like, really important, you know, things, to, a very important mindset to have, especially in the political field. And, yeah, just, like, uh, wrap uh, this episode up, we're going to be talking a little, about, a little bit about voting and completing the census. So this, I think today is actually U.S., like, National U.S. Voter Registration Day. So yeah, just gonna be talking about that. And you know, with the election coming up, you know, November, why do you personally think people have a responsibility to vote and why? So the, the right to vote is, as John Lewis would accurately say, is the most powerful nonviolent uh, tool in democracy to bring about change. Um, each and every one of this, each and every one of us uh, call this, calls this country home. Um, each and every one of us are impacted by the decisions our leaders make. Um, and as a voter, 
it is ultimately we who have the power in this country to determine the direction of our country and who our leaders will be. Um, and so for, for those reasons, you know, I would encourage everyone to, to use the power they have and vote. Um, but, but first and foremost, that requires understanding that all of us um, as American citizens have an enormous amount of power simply through the vote itself, right? And, and again, I think this, is, this goes back to ensuring that you know your own history as an American. Asian Americans weren't allowed to vote for you know, the first 50 to 75 years of, of, of our existence here in this country through the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, from which we couldn't even be US citizens, right? right. Um, and, and, and there's a reason why they want, you know, they don't want to allow or they want you to, or they want to make it harder for people to vote, right? Um, and, and so, especially today, especially in this moment in time in, in which we are seeing this backlash toward the diversification of the United States, as our generation is coming into its own, um, quite frankly, I think people are terrified. Um, even if we may be American at, at heart, you know, we love baseball and apple pie, um, because of how we may appear or look, um, you know, people may see us as, as an other, right? Um, again, you have the power to change that by voting um, and ensuring our laws include all of us and that, and that we have the ability to elect leaders who will be inclusive of, of our diversity uh, because this country has always, always, always been a nation of immigrants. Um, every single person who calls America home, except for Native Americans, uh, came here from a different land, um, voluntarily or by force, right? Um, those, are, those are truths which we have to care, we, we have to hold, hold on to and ensure we continue to pass that truth um, forward um, if we want to continue uh, to keep you know, th this, this great experiment going. Um, and this, this uh, American dream that all of us have, have been afforded uh, to live, um, to pursue our own paths, um, if we want to keep that opportunity alive for the next generation, we have to do our part today and for leaders uh, who reflect our values um, and, and who will, will address the things that, con that concern us. Because ultimately, um, you know, who, who's in power should represent um, we the people, and, and if it does not, uh, we have to keep on voting and, and run for office ourselves uh, to ensure that in this democratic system that we abide by, um, that again, it is we the people who have the power uh, to determine the direction of this country. Um, and especially being in the United States of America, the world, especially when it comes to issues such as climate change. Right, yeah. Um, so what do you think that for most of our listeners who are probably not eligible to vote yet, what do you think uh, we can do instead? Uh, get involved. Uh, get involved in political campaigns, uh, volunteer. Um, you know, my, my first foray into the political arena, the public service side, uh, or the legislative component aside, um, was phone banking. Phone banking for Stacey Abrams. Uh, when she was minority leader in the Georgia House Democratic Caucus, 
Um, I think I volunteered anywhere between 10 to 20 hours a week uh, making calls and, and again, talking to all different kinds of folks about issues that I cared about. Um, a great question that often gets asked is, you know, how do you, in this partisan age, how do you talk about um, some of these issues without, you know, pissing people off or getting the door slammed in your face? Um, and, and my answer to them, which I, I don't think I have all the answers to that question, but what's worked for me, I should say, is sharing your own story and, and how these issues have personally impacted you, affected you, uh, because through that authentic, sincere story that you share of your own self, um, again, you're able to connect with your audience and others and that they will see themselves in you or at least that, that shared experience, um, whether it was um, a fear or concern or, or you, know, you know, again, your motivations for why you feel an issue needs to be addressed. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would encourage folks to, you know, get involved to the best of their ability. Um, but, you know, more important, and, and I think especially for the next generation, um, to lean in to the democratic process um, and don't become cynical. I, I think that's one of the most dangerous things for young people in the political system, which is to think that it's beyond them, that, that it doesn't affect them at all and then disengage. Because if, if the next generation disengages, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have some of the problems we have today. Um, and that oftentimes we're, we're governed and ruled by people who don't necessarily understand the issues that affect us, even care or acknowledge the problems that we may be facing. Yeah, for sure. I think like our generation, there's like, I guess like the people around me, like my classmates, some of them feel like they don't really have an obligation to know what's going on, like why, the, why it's important to vote because simply because like, oh, it doesn't affect me, my vote doesn't matter because there's plenty of other people who are voting, so why should I? So mm -hmm. yeah, just like, you know, for those who are listening, even though like we may not be eligible to vote yet, it's so important to know what exactly we're voting for because voting doesn't necessarily mean voting for our president, you know, it affects us um, you know, in our daily lives, you know, whether or not we have enough funding for our schools and um, if we have like a lamp, uh, you know, a light on our street. And that actually, I think like when we talk about like the census, that's also really yes. affects us. So yeah, just a little bit about the census. Why is it important to complete it? And how do you think that the AAPI community can be, or, you know, minority communities, how can we be affected by completing the census? So, so uh, the census is so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it does two main things. It, or, so it determines power and it determines resource allocation, mm -hmm. right? And so it's important uh, for Asian Americans in particular, if, if we want to use the power that we have, and if we want to make sure that our communities receive the resources that we need for the next decade, Right? We're talking about the next generation. Um, we have to be seen and counted. Um, and of course, the, the, uh, the deadline to complete the census is in eight days on September 30th. Uh, so, so now is the time to complete the census. And you can go online and it takes, you know, I think five, 10 minutes at most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, I'll talk briefly about the power component. Um, after the census is completed, next year, 
all of the congressional and the legislative uh, district lines are going to be redrawn based on those new numbers. Um, and so if there is an inaccurate count, um, again, the political system is not going to represent the will of the people, certainly when it comes to the Asian American community and our opportunity to impact the legislative process and, and the democ and American democracy. Um, and again, you know, if, if we're not at the table, right, if we're not represented in these bodies of power, then we're on the menu, right? And, and I think it's important for us to understand that if we're not, if, not, if we're not either being, if we're not at the table or if we're not mm -hmm. using the power that we have by voting, we're giving that away to people whose interests may not be aligned with ours um, and may be in conflict with ours as well. Um, and so that's the power component of the census. The resource allocation component, you know, we're talking about $1.5 trillion over the next decade um, that will be allocated for education, for affordable housing, um, for, for transportation, um, for, you know, a almost 300 different federal programs um, that are all uh, designed and based on an accurate count. Um, and, and so again, I, I cannot, you know, stress enough the importance of, of you know, everyone participating in that census. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. So please fill out the census. Like, like Mr. Park said, it takes five to 10 minutes and, you know, really, really does matter. So yeah, that pretty much wraps up our interview questions for today. And, you know, just Mr. Park, I really thank you for, you know, being here with us. It was a really meaningful conversation. Definitely learned a lot. And just a little message for our listeners again. Mr. Park is not only the first openly gay man to be elected to the position of a state legis legislator, but also the first Asian American Democrat to do so. As we talked about before, he's the first Korean American to address the country in a national party speech. So I really do think that's admirable and um, definitely really do appreciate your representing us in the political field and really thank you for just taking time out of your day to be on our podcast. Well, well my pleasure. Again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, if I could say one last thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, think, I think our generation has uh, and the next generation has an enormous amount of promise and potential. Um, we have to, one, recognize it within ourselves. Uh, we need to be fearless um, rise up and, and, you know, and, and take this country by storm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asians in the Spotlight. You can find Sam Park on Instagram at Rep Sam Park and on Twitter and Facebook at Sam for Georgia. To stay updated with Asian advocates and Asians in the Spotlight, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you for staying until the end, and we hope that you'll tune in to our next episode of the series, Asians in the Political Fields, next Saturday. Thank you.